folks, it's Rick Wilson, and welcome to The Enemies List. Today's guest is Dr. Sophia McLennan. She's a professor of international affairs and comparative lit at Penn State University and the founding director for the Center of Global Studies. And we're talking to Sophia today because she's written and thought a lot about the intersection of a few things that I'm fascinated by, where politics, culture, history, humor, and the melting point of all those things in the political world and the social world we're in today. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Sophia, welcome to The Enemies List. Tell us a little bit more about your current work and what you're doing and, and about where your where your head is. I mean, that when you when I saw the words "the revolution will be satirized," I was immediately like, "Click," because I think that a lot of a lot of people underestimate the power of humor and satire and comedy in times of big social stress and change. So, and we certainly can be clearly said to be living in that sort of moment in our history. So, with that, I'll let you uh, take it away. Yeah, I mean, the next big book project I'm doing on my own is uh, trying to study the global rise of satire as sort of a form of political uh, behavior. It's the sort of conduit for a lot of political action. Uh, There's things like the rise of satirical candidates. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about somebody like Al Franken, who was a comedian, but then runs a straight campaign. We're talking about these hybrid campaigns, like what we saw with Vladimir Zelensky right. or Jan Gunnar in Iceland. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a long history of candidates running to just sort of mock the system because by running they can reveal like stupid stuff about the system. So that's always been true, but there's this strange hybrid type of candidate. So I'm I'm going to work on that. I have a chapter on the rise of satire news I was just in Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan meeting with folks there mm-hmm. that sort of launched their own daily show type of show. Uh, so this is extremely global. Well, the third piece that's uh, really novel is the rise of satire as a really effective tool for activists. So that research I'm actually doing as part of a bigger team and that has offshoot research, and we just published a big study in the Journal of Democracy on it. So those three sort of pillars are are part of my next big book. I mean, I've always found to to, to get talk about the satirical news angle. I've always found, and I guess I guess in America, it's not it, it didn't start with John Stewart, but I think he kind of perfected the art during the the early two thousands. I, I find that a fascinating area because it combines. It combines a way to to get at topical subjects that are much more you know unfixed in time than sort of the uh, the, the the traditional sort of pillars of comedy. With a guy like John Stewart, with with who is able to to use all the the signifiers and constructs of a new show and then deliver a satirical message, I just think that's a fascinating emergence 
tell people why that works, why why it's so important. Because I think that's really something that folks have not fully internalized yet, even today. Well, we want to remind people that in the land of satire news, there's sort of two common modes. One type, which has an extremely long history, is what you might call satirical fake news. That's what right. Andy Borowitz does right. for the New Yorker. So there, there isn't actually any truth in there, except for that the it conjures the truth by saying something completely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. The other side, the side you're talking about, and in fact, the side I'm more interested in, is the side that the, the information you're getting is accurate. The packaging is satirical. And so you're getting, uh, I mean, you know, that doesn't mean that you're not going to get silly jokes where you make fun of people, things like that. But the the basic concept between the satire news is that the information is accurate. And that's what Jon Stewart really took to a new level. The comedian, satirist you want to give credit for starting this is actually Michael Moore, whose show The Awful Truth and then Mm, TV Nation mm was an early precursor to what Jon Stewart did with The Daily Show when he got right. it. Because before that, um, it had been, uh, The Daily Show had just been more silly, right? Making fun of people, making them look stupid. Uh, so then Jon Stewart takes it to a new level. And now, like you said, it's sort of stitched into the media landscape. Mm-hmm. People get their news that way. It was never meant to be your number one source. It was meant to be more of a comment but now we know uh, that it's the first source. And we saw that, for example, we see it with The Daily Show. Um, we see it with John Oliver. Hasan Minaj was doing it on sure. the Patriot Act. Mm-hmm. So this is just now a thing. And it's not just a thing that's a U.S. Uh, way of getting information. It's global. And so that gets us into a bigger conversation about what is it about traditional mainstream news that has sort of ceded territory in this way to comedians being a source of information. Why did, why did that change happen? Because I, I can carefully calibrate humor and, and what, how I look at it. Because one time I was, I, I, I was, I'm, I'm a, I go on Bill Maher pretty frequently. And he said something to me one night to the effect of you're a funny guy. You're a really funny guy, but you never come here with a bit. And I think that's something that a lot of people expect of the the comic news shows. They they think they're going to be a bit, but they're actually they're just they're they're actual news delivered with a perspective. It's like a it's like a good entry system to get it into people's minds that that wouldn't ordinarily either pay attention to news or who I think have become so broken by the way American political news siloed off into two big you know, competitive screaming camps. Well, you're you're 100% right. So your instincts are spot on. The first thing that the satire news does is it does get an uh, audience who's otherwise just sick of it. Right. Just not going to watch any of it. So it, it is an access point because there's pleasure, right? So this is the fun part of my mm-hmm. research is why, you know, we need pleasure. <laughs> we really do. And when politics is just depressing and awful and fear-mongering, we get worn out. And so comedy will draw in folks. So, you know, I'm assuming you're a little like me, you're a little bit of a news uh, Mm -hmm. nerd. And maybe if you wake up at three in the morning, you actually check the news. I'm that kind of person, but I'm not normal. Right. The normal person has had it 
They've had it. Mm-hmm. They're, they're sick of it. So that's why comedy is very helpful. And there's a lot of good research to back that up. It's called what the, the nerdy term for this is issue priming. Okay. It primes people to care about an mm-hmm. issue they would otherwise just not be able to handle. And that's a particularly valuable when you're talking about heavy stuff like classified mm-hmm. documents or the climate. Well, I can. And so uh, comedy is very helpful. I can give you a great example. In 2006 or seven, I remember sitting in a focus group and it was remarkable how much Republicans had turned against the Iraq war. And over and over again, we kept hearing John Stewart, John Stewart, comedy. You know, it, 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 and it really, it was something that took a while for the political class to catch up to. Like the performative part of the political class is to say, well, I read the Wall Street Journal and the international section of the New York Times first. And, and you know, vast majority of people that were getting their news about it were not doing that. They were not sunk in this um, deep well of knowledge or exposure every day, or like us, nerding out every day to 300 political stories. They were seeing something funny about Stuart making fun of W falling down or, 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 or mangling a sentence and then connecting it to the mishandling of the war. And I, I remember having that moment in that focus group going, whoa, this is, this is more broken than I thought. No, that's absolutely true. So, so you're going to draw in a bigger, uh, you catch folks that would otherwise not be paying attention to political news. The other side, though, is a side like people like us who watch all of it, and then we get pretty worn out. Comedy fires up that combination of high order critical thinking it engages the most sophisticated parts of your brain mm-hmm, mm-hmm. while also making you feel good. And so when you're, say, digging through, you know, reading legal briefs or torture memos right. or whatever, <laughs> you know, you get worn out. Espionage indictments. Can give yeah. you, exactly. gives you a cognitive release and allows you to continue using your brain on all cylinders. So for folks like us, it's really valuable too. So the, so you can start to see that it hits um, the diehards, but it also opens up the community space. And then the other thing it does is it helps us feel less alone. So mm. that's especially valuable when you're dealing with a misinformation landscape uh, and folks start to question everything. They, they, you know, it's like being in a relationship when I'm like, I told you I loved you three years ago. I don't know why we have to talk about this anymore, right? You know, all that gaslighting wears on people. And so comedy is very helpful with that too. And it helps people feel less alone. We have um, interesting research, for example, that shows that when you watch a clip, let's say, of something you like, your first instinct is share it. Mm-hmm. You, you don't want to just leave it. That's not the end of it. You want to share it. It makes it more pleasurable for you to think somebody else is going to see it. So that's a very big part of building community, especially, again, in a society that's really rethinking its relationship to political behavior. I think in a weird way, the 2016 election with Trump, because Trump is a comic figure, sometimes deliberately, as much as I loathe him, he is a performer. And he gave people, you know, the... The sort of transgression of Trump was partly because he was funny about it, because the the nicknames and the mockery and the and the bad behavior, it gave people a sort of it gave people sort of permission structure to say, yeah, you know, he's an a hole, but he's my a hole. He's a jerk, but he's the kind of jerk we need to to show those people in D.C. up to teach them a lesson. 
But like all authoritarians, he hates being mocked himself. Yeah, no, I mean, he, okay, you, you've got a lot of things. Yes, he's <laughs> got extremely thin skin. Mm-hmm. That's very funny, too. Oh, yeah. Um, but the other part is that Trump was, still really is, an enigma for the media. Sure. They don't know what to do with him. Even the, as of this so minute, absurd. they still don't know what to do. That's right. That's right. Because he bundles, so he epitomizes absurdity in all its facets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he's absurd because he's this caricature already of himself. Right. He doesn't even seem like a thing that's real. Mm -hmm. But then he's doing these absolutely terrible things that you think to yourself, no politician's ever been able to get away with this. And then Trump does it and he does it spectacularly. Uh So the spectacle of Trump is really complicated, right? This Putin, Putin is boring compared to Trump, oh God, yes. right? Putin is a very predictable, so even though he has his moments of wanting to get attention, it's nothing like Trump. No, no, he's, 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 so, he's a very basic sort of authoritarian. Trump is a, a much more complex figure, I think. And he's e- equally stupid and like, evil mastermindy. Right. So he's got all of these things about him that are so hard to unpack. And so the media would say, one of the things that I I found kind of a little bit frustrating, frankly, is, you know, say Anderson Cooper or Don Lemon, when he was on CNN, they'd have some somewhat serious coverage and then they'd go (laughs) like have this weird chortle. I was like, guys, what are you doing? Right. You know, like, it's not funny. Yeah. It's funny, but it's not funny like that. And the satirists got it from day one. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, the way I like to think of it is when the world is absurd, when the situation is ironic, creative irony is how you see it. And so imagine that we're at the circus and the satirists are the ones holding up the funhouse mirror to this crazy thing that now you can see. That 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 sense of of Trump sort of being like a magician saying, here's exactly the trick I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. You're going to like it. And then the people reporting on it still can't quite connect why he has that audience actor or audience performer relationship in the same way that someone who is a is a actual performer would have. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, to be fair, part of the reason is because the televised media, at least, is already kind of ridiculous. So sure. they're oh, already yeah. trying to get. Sorry, this is how I don't get on CNN. <laughs> uh, the the fact is that if you are, if you are saying breaking news and getting all excited that you have some piece of information that's going to change how the world works, and you do this literally seventeen times a day, at some point, people just don't trust you Mm -hmm. and you seem ridiculous yourself. The the exhaustion sets in. (laughs) Sure. It's not, it's yeah, exactly. And so what we saw, we have a real decline in public trust in -hmm. the news media and for good reason, because you have these folks that are constantly crying that the sky is falling or covering an empty podium before Trump has even gotten to (laughs) the stage. So once that's the thing that you're doing, when the satirists come in, the performers who, importantly, no one expects to have gravitas, mm-hmm. and then they tell you something valuable and they do it in a way that's enlightening, it's refreshing, right? So because the expectation of trust with the satirists is low, it turns out 
the tr actual trust in the satirists is high. And because your expectation in the news media is not matched by what the news media is doing, right. then the, you know, the public gets cynical about it. Well, I mean, and I think that cynicism is, it, it's tempting too, because I think, I think a lot of Americans in particular, and I've seen this in, in I, I was over in Italy last week. I had a, one, one political discussion the whole week I was over there. I was actually on vacation for the second time in seven years. I had one political discussion and a, a guy said to me, he goes, listen, Berlusconi was a crook, but he got away with being a crook because he was a funny son of a bitch. And, and if Trump was a little bit less self-aware and a little bit less needy, he would have gotten away with so much more. And I was kind of terrified by that, by that insight because Berlusconi really did, you know, by playing a clown, he could be a very bad actor. By playing a sort of a, a, a sort of a boob, he could be a he could he could get away with a lot more uh, consequential and terrible things, um, and it's it it it's it's kind of like a hack in the Western political and mental land and cultural landscape. I think that that bad guys can get away with some stuff like that when they seem a little clownish. I mean, why does Ted Cruz act a little bit goofy? He knows Ted's a, Ted's a much more sophisticated guy than 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 he appears to be. He knows being kind of weird and goofy actually lets him try to feed in some much more you know pernicious messaging and poison into the political system. Same thing with Matt Gates and and to a degree Marjorie Taylor Greene. Some of them are 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 more sophisticated than they look uh, on the surface. Yeah, I mean that's a different kind of spectacle. I, I would say though um, the frightening thing is to imagine what would happen if some autocrat tried to get me to consult with them because I could tell them how to really, you know, do some serious Let's damage. not give Ron I mean, DeSantis any ideas. Do, <laughs> the first thing you do is, is embed self-deprecating humor right. alongside these extremist mm -hmm. policies because self-deprecating humor endears you to the public, which, of course, no autocrat ever wants to do because they have these massive egos. But if you could convince one of these guys to do that, it would be a, it would change everything. It would make it so much harder to critique them. Um, but of course, the the good news is they're not likely to ever do that. And Trump, of course, couldn't, <laughs> he can't take any sense of critique. Trump is the and very last person then, that can do that. <laughs> well, one of the things that I kind of loved about Trump on Twitter was that every time he would tweet, you could watch the response. And frankly, more of the comments on the Trump tweets were people mocking him. Mm -hmm. It was really funny. Mm -hmm. And we've never had that in US history sure. that you have a president going straight to the public. Of course, he's got his supporters, but what they do is boring. When you then have people uh, making fun of him, and it's just fantastic. It's so funny. And, and that's what I sort of refer to in my book uh, as citizen satire, which you're just seeing more and more of now. I mean, I, I, I bluntly engage in it myself all the time. I mean, that, that's, that's an area on social media where I could, have, I, I could easily be much more ponderous about the political realities of things underneath it all. But, but I find that the messages that, that punch through harder and that get through to people are very frequently not the you know the, the 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 explicitly explanatory political you know nuts and bolts stuff but rather you, you make fun of the of the policy and the thing and then you you know talk about the guy's wig 
or you or you talk about how needy he is or whatever. I think that's I think that I, I think you're right that social media has kind of democratized that that degree of people being able to deliver satire. I mean, it's still wildly, wildly variable as to how good it is as satire, but it's out there for sure. And I think social media has definitely sort of um, juiced that ability for regular people to do that. Yeah, I mean, and you know, when it's making fun of what people look like, it's you know, it can be very funny, of course, but that's not where the real sort of art of satire no, lies. No, no. The best is when satire goes after faulty logic, which in the current political landscape is fantastic. I like to remind people that Stephen Colbert used to say, George W. Bush, great president or greatest, greatest president. president. <laughs> and that is just perfect mm-hmm. because that helps the audience. It, it does all this cognitive work. right? And so- under, you know, when when we're hearing about alternative facts and we're this and that, and when you have that kind of, it isn't just that we were being lied to. Mm-hmm. It's the logic that was being used, the false binaries, the red herrings, all of these kinds of like go-to straw man arguments, whataboutism, the stuff that, you know, was just every day coming out of the Trump administration it wears you out. But when a comedian is really effective at saying, um, is this really how this goes? Are these really our choices? Is this really that? Mm-hmm. That's when satire is at its absolute best. And and honestly, that's what is the most important feature of satire for helping democracy, because you need an, an electorate that can think. And it, it's not so much the what are they going to do with the information? They have to know how to put it together. And that's about logic. You know, that's interesting because it is, it, there is a sense very frequently, um, I think on the left, that the right has some sort of very coherent, internally consistent, logical plan going forward on things. And it's very frequently not. It's very frequently just a very blunt, emotional, like hammer to the head rather than something more more considered. Do you think that that, that satire and humor work the same way on the left and the right? Oh, that's the question, right? <laughs> so um, satire, ostensibly, mm-hmm. works the same. It is the case that more intelligent people like it, mm-hmm. just higher IQ. Why? Because you have to like effortful thinking. You have to be someone who likes mental challenge. Satire doesn't, isn't straight, it uses irony, says one thing, means another thing. Some of us get a kick out of that. Some of us get frustrated by it. Or maybe I feel stupid and then I don't like it and then I'm angry, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a dividing line uh, between satire and sort of uh, you know denigrating, mocking humor. So it's smarter people. Okay, that's one thing. The other thing that you see is that satir- people who enjoy satire are comfortable with not having absolutes, not having clear answers. Right. So for example, if I might say, look, taking classified documents, that's a bad thing, but there's degrees. So if you took a classified documents and then when it was discovered, you said, oops, I'm sorry. And here's my whole house, search anything. I don't think I have any more, but hey, have a look. That's one way of taking them. And another way is flaunting it, lying about it, hiding it in a bathroom. So if you're the kind of brain that can say, yes, 
taking classified documents bad, but there's degrees, then you're going to like satire mm -hmm. better. If you're the kind of person like, oh, well, you know, one person did it. So anybody else who did it, same thing, then you're not going to like it. So that's, that's just a, a baseline. The issue is that in the, in, in the United States, that what we think of as right versus left has sadly shifted again. And this is, it's not fair because you have this sort of very loud minority mm -hmm. that takes up a For lot of sure. bandwidth. And that loud minority on the right has somehow decided to like being stupid <laughs> at a level that we're not, you know, that wasn't always true. Right. And I would say in the U.S., it goes back to 9-11, right? It goes back to 9-11 and it goes back to saying something terrible happened in the United States. Mm -hmm. That we agree on. Who did it? how to handle it. We don't agree on it. And we could not agree on it and still be patriots. But that wasn't right. the way it happened. And so, you know, uh, that was really the beginning, right? The George W. Bush, great president, greatest president, is that moment when suddenly the right is now about following a leader and being attached and, and being emotional and not allowing questions because somehow asking questions makes you not patriotic, which is super weird. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that to me, I grew up, I was born in 1965, I'm 57. I grew up where that kind of division wasn't left and right, but right. it is today. It is true that you see more of an affinity for satire among the, what you would think of as the left um, but bear in mind, the left can be really bad. At oh, oh, believe me, too, there, there's a right? there's so, a whole streak of humorlessness in part of the progressive movement that is that is equally insufferable in a lot of ways because it's very it's so very that righteous. Thin skin, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that thin skin thing that knows no party affiliation. Right. <laughs> and I teach, you know, I teach satire. I have to say to my students ahead of time, I'm like, look, guys. If you're someone who gets offended, if there's a joke, you really shouldn't take this class because right. there's no one who's going to make it out of here without at some mm -hmm. point going, ah, uh, you know, and we talk about it. Okay. It makes you uncomfortable, but you know, does that mean this person should not speak again? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, so again, that's why I think the left, right break breakdown on comedy is a little more tricky mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I would say both left and the right, if, if you feel, if they feel like you've offended them, they can, again, try to destroy you. And, uh, oh, yes. that's sort of a new, you know, I, I think element. Yeah. I think, I think that on the right, um, I think that on the right, there's, being told you're humorless on the right has taken on this very weird like cultural significance for them now because Andrew Breitbart, who sort of reshaped their news environment on the right, and it was certainly, you know, I, I, I came up in politics as a traditional Republican, and a lot of the things Breitbart was doing from the beginning, I was like, all right, that's a bit much for polite company, but okay, do your thing. But now if you tell them that they're not funny or 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 if you or if they or if you criticize their attempt at being funny oh my lord it is a reaction that it just it's unparalleled and it's like they're trying to find their way into into some part of the culture um that like like they know something like that exists they know the language of urdu exists but they don't know how to speak it um and they don't know where to find a guidebook it's a strange it's a strange kind of uh 
it's a strange kind of anger that they get when when you basically like, God, you're just not you guys just aren't it's it's the the humor isn't there it's like ho ho stupid libs it's not it's not humor per se it's just it's just a a weird kind of uh expression of one of their many outrages i think about like being disconnected from some of the the, the majority of the culture well, you could take Greg Gutfeld as a really good example of this. Mm-hmm. His show um, on Fox News has done really well, and there was a lot of uh, press about how it was outpacing the left, you know, late night, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there's a lot to be said there, one of which is that Greg Gutfeld's not a satirist. That's not satire no. at all oh, what God, he's no. doing. Um, and we could debate whether you find it funny. Um, that's you know, an interesting conversation, but most of what he's doing is just sort of pointing fingers, doing that kind of bullying, har har stuff. And, uh, you know, that tends to be, unfortunately, the dominant mode in what you'd call right-wing comedy today. Um, The Babylon Bee is another example where sometimes I would say they do some pretty funny stuff, and uh, especially if they get creative. And and again, when you have um, sort of big identity categories or personas that are self, you know, consider themselves self-important, that's very easy to satirize that. And those guys can do a good job at it. But other times they're just being mean. And that's, you know, not very sophisticated comedy. Yeah, I think a lot of it is is essentially the equivalent of, of – you know, liberal dick jokes uh, on Gutfeld. It's just not that. There's not. It's yeah. it, it's it's not meant for an audience that, that you're trying to. You know, as as we started talking about this in the discussion, you know, the the good satire can illuminate political changes and moments in society and culture and politics. It's the sort of pie in the face Benny Hill approach rather than the John Stewart approach. I think you get a lot of that out of the out of Gutfeld and some of the some of the emergent ones on like Daily Wire and things like that. Uh, it, it seems like it's all trying to feed the uh, the machine of their outrage and, and validate their outrage, rather than sort of saying, "Hey, think about the think about the whole structure that's going on here." Right. It's like an angry laugh, <laughs> right. and that's why you know uh, what John Stewart's doing right now on his new show. The problem is mm-hmm. like it's a very interesting show because at the end of the day, sure, it's going to seem on the surface clearly from a left perspective, and it, but I'd like to say. If John Stewart's really doing a show about healthcare for vets, how is that an intrinsically left thing? Right. I mean, shouldn't that be a all of us thing? I mean, this is one of these issues. One of the things that I think has been very smart about that show is that there are a lot of episodes where it's like, this is just in the public interest. Mm -hmm. We should care about this. This isn't... You know, he has the show about race. Okay, you could see that probably to some people seemed partisan. But when we're talking about things like prison sentences or we're talking about, again, you know, the health care. 9-11 first responders. Yeah, hits, right. <laughs> how is that partisan? And if, if it's the left that's defending these people who serve our country mm-hmm. and yet the left is the party that's supposed to Weak. not be patriotic i mean that that's where it's mm-hmm. very funny to me i mean that's where the irony is fantastic oh i, th- I think that's exactly right so tell us about what tell you so you, your 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 new te- your new work is coming up tell us about anything we should be reading or following you on social media on any of those areas you want to tell the audience where they can find more of your work so 
Well, so the book that I have that's just out is Trump Was a Joke, How Satire Made Sense of a President Who Didn't. Mm -hmm. And that is available anywhere. You can find it on all the platforms. All the usual places. Uh, Fine books are sold. That's right. That's my new book. And that came out in late March. And then, you know, and, and it's, it's accessible. And I write regularly for a range of outlets. I uh, just had a piece come out in the conversation that's sort of the, the nerdy professor space, but then those pieces end up in lots of other outlets. So I did right. a piece on basically the role that comedy can play in 2024. And I also have a regular column with Salon, so I write for them. And so those are the things that are sort of out there now. My big project, um, besides the book I was talking about, The Revolution Will Be Satirized, is, a, is actually looking at uh, data on how satirical activism can play a role in advancing social change. So that's been, so as weird as when we were talking about the role that satire is playing in news. Mm-hmm. So think about this. Today, if you go to a protest, you're going to see sassy, sarcastic, satirical signs. This is a new activist landscape. And so we're looking at research where we're we're digging deeper. What if rather than a traditional protest, you go and decide to celebrate an autocrat's birthday by having a cake (laughs) that has a picture of them behind bars uh, giving free blank checks from the national treasury to the autocrat and a one-way ticket to prison, right? <laughs> so you you celebrate that right. in this absurd way instead of just going out and marching around the the you know the equivalent of the White House and saying get this guy out of office, right? Right. So what is the difference between that playful way of signaling corruption? You know what makes that work better. So we have a study that shows that that kind of activism has had a measurably uh, measurable impact on the success of regime change activists. Right. So we're dr- digging into this in other Terrific. ways and looking at it, especially for things like climate action, because that's one of the biggest challenges for activists. No question. Well, Sophia McLennan, thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. Folks, the book is Trump Was a Joke, How Satire Made Sense of a President Who Didn't. Um, and I'm sure we're going to hear more from Sophia as we go forward. I hope you come back on the show as we get into the depths of the uh, the hopefully hilarious 2024 campaign. And, uh, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. On today's enemies list, RFK Jr., Joe Rogan, Steve Bannon, and all the enablers around this entire insane push to replace Joe Biden with RFK Jr. in the Democratic Party. Now, there are two groups of people doing this. One are the insane people, the lunatics, the outrageously kooky fringe weirdos attracted to Robert F. Kennedy's uh, anti-vax conspiracy theory, CIA is going to kill me. Um, batshit crazy, you know, fuck-a-doodle-doo personality. I'm sorry. Even if you are a Democrat with some vestigial love of the Kennedys, God bless you, this is not your guy. Now, more importantly, he's surrounded by enablers. And those enablers are people like Steve Bannon and Elon Musk and RFK Jr. 
He exists because he's surrounded by people like these. And now, most importantly, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan has probably the largest audience of uh, many of the people who enable the crazed, weird, bizarro world idea that Ray Jr. is either an acceptable candidate for Democratic the Democratic nomination, or, or could be an American president. But this weekend, Joe Rogan decided to take this fight way outside of the bounds of trying to support RFK Jr. and take it to attacking Dr. Peter Hotez. Now, just by declaring Peter Hotez must debate uh, RFK Jr. doesn't make it so. It doesn't mean that you have to go and, and, and debate the guy who's outside the bus station screaming at aliens and put a listening device up his ass. This is insanity. So today's enemies list, it's all the enablers of RFK Jr. It's all the crazies around RFK Jr. who really have now reached a point where, and I, look, I'm never going to call for them to be responsible because I know none of them are responsible. They're all, they're all anarchists and nihilists at this point. But um, we've really reached a peak here of some true levels of insanity that I didn't even believe were possible. So for all the enablers of RFK Jr., you're all on the enemies list. Get your shit together. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.